0: about a hundred miles to ephesus a major thriving city on probably some type of business and while he's there he he, he meets this guy named paul and paul as we know is a missionary he's a, happens to be in prison in this moment and he's telling everybody the gospel from prison epaphras hears the gospel gets lit on fire goes back to his own city of Colossae, starts telling everybody about jesus a, a church starts to get formed and as this church is getting formed, um, Epaphras is leading it. And anytime you put a bunch of people together, you know what happens? It gets messy, right? Because people are messy. So things start to happen in this small congregation. Epaphras does what every good leader should do. When he gets overwhelmed and he doesn't know what to do, he goes and he tries to find somebody to help him. He finds a mentor. So he goes back to Paul in Ephesus. He tells them all the great things that are happening and all the challenges that they're facing Paul writes a letter to send back to Colossae, a church he's never been at, and that's the very letter that we're studying right now. It's four chapters, a letter from Paul to this church that he's never even been to, but that he knows much about because Epaphras has told him. And some of the major themes uh, of this this letter, I just want to kind of just recap and build what Paul's been building towards as, we, as we'll enter into uh, uh, Colossians chapter 3, or we'll, we'll be in the middle of it today, but let's start in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says this, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And so our series, a title is called Transferred based on this verse. That so we've been transferred, but first we need to remember, do you remember what you've been delivered from? You've been delivered from something. And do you fully understand what you've been transferred to? What that looks like. Paul starts off that way, and then he, 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 he continues on. We'll pick up in the same chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. And he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. And so what Jesus has done is he's taken our sins, it's been propitiated to him, it's been absorbed onto him, and and, and then he gave us his righteousness. If you guys, kids, if you guys are here, when your parents ask you what did you learn today I'll teach you a word that'll probably get you dessert at dinner right just tell them say we learned about penal substitutionary atonement <laughs> right that's what this is is penal the, the penalty that we deserve was substituted onto Jesus and he made atonement for that right penal substitutionary atonement and then he goes on in verse 26 and 27 the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, not just the Jews, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. So, so not only were you transferred from something, you were delivered from something, you were transferred something, and then he put Christ in you. And that is the hope, the foundation, the anchor of your soul, as, as, as it says in the letter of Hebrews, that is the hope for future glory. That's the hope of your glory, is this Jesus in you. And then in in, in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it To the cross, and so how does he accomplish this? He took our sin. He didn't just forgive us; he nailed it to the cross. He it was it was paid for. It wasn't just forgiven; it was paid for, and 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 so he purchased our forgiveness. And then in Colossians chapter three, building up to right where we're at today, he says, "If then you've been raised with Christ, if this is you, if you're in Christ, if Christ is in you, then this is." This is how you would go about living the rest of your life. You would seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You would, set your minds, uh, you, would, you would set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Did you guys capture all that? In case you didn't, let's do the gospel according to the container store. Last week, I said, if you were going to, you guys might have ever had this experience, anyone ever cleaned out a closet or your garage, and you realize like a Saturday, you dedicate a whole day to it, and you start to do this, and what do you make first? You make a huge mess. In order to clean something up, the process involves that you take everything out, you make a huge mess, and I don't know about you, but you might have had this experience where you, you just stop, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you're tired and you go, why did I start this today? Right? You make a huge mess. And so there's this process going on. And, and, and we talked about uh, uh, cleaning out your closet. So today I thought I'd give you a little more about if you were going to do that, a, a wise thing to do would be to get organized and go to the container store. Or if you're cheap like me, go to the container aisle at Target. So here's how this works according to Paul. This is you. You might say that doesn't look like me, but this is what you would look like if they sold you at Target in the container aisle. This is you. And so what Paul is saying is there's some things about you that you need to understand. First, you have to understand that you were born in shame, that you have this problem. You have sin in you, right? You have this sin in you. And that's a problem, and it keeps you from having a relationship with God, and it's just you with sin in you. And at this point, you you pretty much just feel like a victim of a cruel and senseless world. And not only that, it gets worse. He says, you have sin in you, and you are in the domain of darkness. So this is you born, and you, you guys ever feel like, man, I feel lost. I feel like I don't know what's going on. I just feel like this world's so dark. And so, yeah, of course, this is you. But there's good news. What the Bible says is that when Jesus came, he delivered you from the domain of darkness. And in order to do that, the first thing he had to do was to take your sin and shame and nail it to the cross. And so that's no longer a part of you. And so now here's you. And this is how most Christians, I think, feel like, okay, now I'm free, and this is what I look like. Well, if that's the way that you see it, you don't understand the full picture, There's way more to that. This is you. He doesn't leave you alone. It says that hope, first we have this mystery that's been hidden for ages, the hope of glory, Then now you have Christ in you. Now this is you. And he says, since Christ is in you, let us keep our minds on things above. And one of the things you need to realize is the fuller picture of what's going on. Not only do you have Christ in you, the hope of glory, you're also hidden in Christ. So he puts Christ in you. He puts you in Christ. And now here's you. This is a wonderful thing. But he doesn't leave you there. He says, no, the, 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 you've been hidden in Christ, in God. So the full transformation is The whole transformation is, is you probably, you might wake up some days and think, oh, I'm just a victim of a cruel and senseless world. You are not. You are not a victim of a cruel and senseless world. You are a victor awaiting a great reward in heaven, in Christ, with God, together being with him for eternity. Amen? Amen. And so we have this wonderful picture that Paul kind of paints for us, the gospel according to the container store, and that's where we're at. And then he says, since this is true about you, let's get a little bit more practical and down to earth that this process is, is going to get a little messy. So last week we looked at, he says, you're going to need to put some things off. What Paul is doing here, we believe, is in the first century, when, when a believer would get baptized, they went through this ceremony where they would teach him about baptism and they would show up with their old clothes on. So you would show up to the baptism of, with your old clothes on and then very symbolically, you would take off your old clothes, hopefully in a closet somewhere, right? Not in front of everybody. You would take off your old clothes, and you would put on a new garment, a new robe. And it was symbolic that you were, you were taking off your old life, and that you were putting on this new life. And so Paul picks up on that in Colossians chapter 3, and he says, since this is true of you, you need to put off some things. And we looked at last week, we need to starve our addictions And we need to pull some weeds, right? We starve our addictions, and we pull some weeds. And then today, we're going to look at, he talks about putting on some things. What does it look like to put on some things? So if you're a sports person, you might think of it like this, right? If you want to be a a, a victor, if you want to win, you have to have a good defense, amen? But if all you have is a good defense, then you're not going to make any points, right? And you can't win in sports So you have to have a good defense and a good offense. And how many of us know Christians who have just a great defense? They're just all about, always worried about, you know, what they're putting off and dealing with sin. And that's good, but do you have an offense? And likewise, we know people who, like, they're just offense, right? It's like, I'm just doing all these good things, but secretly in their lives, they're not dealing with, some things that they need to deal with. They're not starving some addictions. They're not, they're not pulling some weeds. And so if you want to be healthy, you need to worry about both. A healthy team is going to have a good defense and a good offense. And this is the heart of Paul writing this letter is that he wants you to be healthy so that you can grow to maturity. We want to be healthy so we can grow to maturity. And the first thing is we need to understand what's happened to us and then we need to deal with Christ by starving some addictions, by pulling some weeds. And then we get into our new chap- our new our new passage today, Colossians 3:12 through 17. Paul says, "So put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience." teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the first thing that Paul is going to address here is if you are in Christ. It's an if. If you are in Christ, if the gospel according to the container store has happened to you, if Jesus has redeemed you, if he's, if he's rescued you from the domain of darkness and delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of Jesus, then you have Christ in you. You're in Christ. You're in God. and You need to realize that. So there's a if, but if this is true of you, if you're in Christ, there's some great news. He starts off and he says, before I talk about what I want you to put on, I want to just identify what's already true about you. I want to identify some identity issue of how Christ sees you when he sees you now. It says, and so you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. If you had been Jewish, you would have immediately heard this and you would have remembered back to Deuteronomy. When, when God says to Moses about the people, he says that you are my chosen people, my treasured possession. You are set apart and holy, and you are loved by God. Peter later would pick up that imagery in his letter, and Paul also does. So if you were Jewish, you would have, you would have immediately understood this. But his point in this letter is it's not just for the Jewish people. It is also for the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. And so the reality is, is that if you were not Jewish, if you were a Gentile, or if you were Jewish, if you were whoever you were, you are going to relate to these things. And I would say they're things that are relevant and that we should all relate to. And here's the impact that they have. The first thing what he's saying when he says you're chosen is he's saying if you're in Christ, he will not reject you. He has chosen you and he will not reject you. It's been said that the gospel could be simply uh, uh, identified like this. That if if you're in Christ, there is nothing that you could do to make God love you any less. And there's nothing that you could do to make God love you any more. He already loves you with full capacity. Why? Because he's chosen to. He's chosen you. And he will not reject you if you are in Christ. You are chosen. Let's get real. Anybody ever experienced rejection? I remember when I was uh, in sixth grade. uh, I don't recommend this, but somehow the culture gets messed up and I thought as a sixth grader I was supposed to get a girlfriend. I didn't know anything about girls. I wasn't ready for a girlfriend, but I just felt like everyone else is doing it so I need to find a girlfriend. So I picked one out that I thought was cute. And (laughs) Sorry, honey. It was a long time before we met. And so... This girl was a year older than me, and I did what any mature sixth grader would do. Back in the day before you had cell phones, you had a wire, kids, that hooked you up to the wall, and that's how you talk to people. And we didn't have three-way calling, but what you could do is, if you had more phones in your house, what you could do is you could get on one phone, and then someone else could get on the same phone in the same house at the same line, and you could listen in. So we devised a plan. I had my friend call this girl. And I got on the other line and he, he asked brilliantly, will you go out with Kenny, circle yes, no, or maybe, right? But he did it over the phone and the first thing that she said was, you mean that chubby kid? You guys laugh at my pain. But as a sixth grader, I was crushed, right? That was an experience that still marked me as silly as it is. Of rejection, and throughout my life, I've had experiences where I put myself out there in risk and experienced rejection. And what does that do? Is it create, creates in you this fear of of intimacy, this fear of putting yourself out there? And so God says, "No, I will not reject you. I will not reject you. You can be confident of this. If you give yourself to me, I will give myself fully to you." And that's what we find in this. That God will not reject you. And then he says in letter B that you are set apart with a purpose. That's what it means to be holy. Everything that was holy in the temple was something that was built and set apart specifically for a godly purpose. You are set apart with a purpose. Why is that significant? How many of you guys struggle with trying to figure out what you want to do with your life? And kids, your parents will tell you this. Other people will tell you, you could do whatever you want to do when you grow up if you just try hard enough that's terrible advice. Sorry, parents. Don't teach your kids that they can do whatever they want to do. God has a plan for their life. Teach them that God has a plan for their life, and they can do that. That's way better news. You don't have to figure out what you want to do with your life. God already has a plan for your life. What you need to do is you need to figure out how to hear God's voice and obey. And if you're, if you're wondering, especially men, if you're wondering, how do I do that? Well, come to the men's event. That's exactly what I'm going to be talking about. How to hear God's voice and obey as men of God. So you're set apart with a purpose. And then he says, and you're loved by God. Man, all that we do to earn love, to earn acceptance, to improve ourselves, or to get other people to think more of ourselves than we think of ourselves, right? The selfie nation, right? All of these things that we do all of this time just to, just, to, just to be loved, to be accepted. And yet God says, no, if this is true about you, you are already, you can be confident that you will not be rejected by God, that he has a plan for your life, and that he loves you deeply, more deeply than you could ever fathom. Isn't that good news? So Paul's like, just hold on a minute before I give you some advice of what I think you should do. You need to know this. You need to remember this, that all of these things have already been handled. Church, this is what Christian freedom is. You're free from worry that God might reject you. You're free from that performance anxiety that comes from trying to, to earn God's love. You're free from figuring out what you want to do and making something of yourself. You're free of worrying about what everybody thinks about you because you are already fully loved by the God of the universe. Hallelujah. Amen. And so he says, since this is true about you, moves into the next section. He says, I want you to be people that are marked by love. And specifically, the type of love that I want you to be marked by is a rugged commitment type love. How many of you guys know that God explains his love and he, and he packages his love in, in, in the form of a covenant? A covenant that God makes with us. And what a covenant is, a guy named Scott McKnight uh, coined this phrase, God's covenant love is a rugged commitment. God makes a rugged commitment with you, and God makes a rugged commitment with me. And that is good news because guess what? I make a lot of mistakes. I fall down a lot. I'm learning to walk. I've been learning to walk as a Christian for 20 years, and I still I make like three steps and then I fall, Right? And remember, you guys ever read the, the story about Peter and go three steps on water, and then that's all you could do? How many of you guys ever walked two steps on water? <laughs> right? So, it's, 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 God doesn't judge things the way that we do, but He has this rugged commitment towards us. And now He's saying, and I want you to have that same type of rugged commitment towards others. And so He says, I want you to put on this rugged love where you actively care for each other actively care for each other he says so put on then compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience this word compassionate hearts is interesting because in the original greek it actually reads like this the bowels of compassion in Greek culture, they thought that all those, all those deep things about you came from your bowels. It's translated as your heart because that's the way that we look at it. We say, with all your heart. They want to say, like, love God with all your bowels. So how many of you just turn to your neighbor and say, I'm praying for your bowels to be compassionate today. That's what he's saying, right? But we know compassion is this great word, and it means love that moves to action. When you have compassion, you don't just love as a feeling, you love as an action. Compassion is active love. So he says, be compassionate from your heart or from your bowels. And then he says, I want you to put on kindness. There's a big difference between being nice and being kind. Have you guys ever figured that out? I mean, some people are super nice. It's great if you're a nice Christian, but there's nowhere in the Bible, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I've read the whole thing a bunch of times, but I've, I get wrong sometimes. But I've never found anywhere in the Bible where it says, be nice. It doesn't say it. It says, be kind. And there's a big difference because sometimes they're, they're, they, can, they can look the same. Kind people are often nice. But, but nice people often won't have hard conversations when they need to. But a kind person will do the hard thing, that's the loving thing, Usually, when they, when they keep to being nice, sometimes it's because they're being selfish and they don't want to put themselves out there and risk. And so he says, be kind. Go the step further from just being nice. And then he says, I want you to put on humility. C.S. Lewis, I think, said it a great way. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, putting yourself down, but it's thinking of yourself less. It's being others focus." It's, it's, it's saying this, it is not about you. It's not about you in this moment. It's about the other, humility. And then he says, put on meekness. Meekness is not the same as weakness. I think we know that, but this guy Andy Crouch said it really well. He said this. He said, what meekness is, it's power that is under control. You, you, we talk a lot in our, in, our, in, our, in our culture about things like social justice and, and, and privilege. Well, here's the thing. If you have privilege, everyone has privilege. It's your influence. But it's using that for others. Meekness is power that's under control. It's using what you have. It's stewardship. It's using your, your resources, your influence, your life for others being meek. When you could take what's yours... You take what's yours and you use it for others. This is the idea of meekness. And then he says patience, or sometimes it's long-suffering, or in the old English, it would be long-tempered. And if you guys ever met somebody who was short-tempered? This would be the exact opposite of being short-tempered, of being long-tempered. That's this idea of patience in this Greek word. This is about having thick skin. As Christians, what he's saying is, when he says be patient, you know what we need to have as Christians? We need to have soft hearts, compassionate, and thick skin. So that whatever anybody does to you or doesn't do to you, or they say about you or persecute you, in all of those moments when you have thick skin, you don't let it get to you because you remember something deeper about you. This is who I am. doesn't matter what anyone says about me. This is who I am. And therefore, I'm going to be steadfast, unmoved. I'm going to do what's right regardless of what anyone else does. That's what it looks like to be patient with this word. It doesn't just mean like, you know, you, you could sit still for a long time. You could be ADD, everybody, and I am. You could be ADD and have this type of patience. Amen? It's good news. In other words, what he's saying, in Colossians 3.10, he had said it like this. He goes, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. If you can't remember all of those things, remember this. What he's saying is, be more like Jesus. Because he wants you to be healthy, and he wants you to grow towards maturity. And he's already said that maturity in Christ looks like becoming more like Jesus. And we said last week, you know what the definition of discipleship is? Discipleship is a simple definition. It's the process of becoming more like Jesus. A disciple is someone who is undergoing a process of becoming more like Jesus. It's exactly what Jesus said to his first followers. He said, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men, just like I am. It's a process of becoming more like Jesus. So he says, be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. And then he says, and don't give up on each other. Don't give up on each other. He says, bearing with one another, and if, if, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Bearing with one another, or, or sometimes translated, forbearance literally means to hold back or, 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 or to hold up. Like somebody, you, you want to react, but you don't. You say, I'm going to wait a minute. I'm going to count to 10 maybe you need to do. I'm going to take a deep breath here. Forbearance is not acting, reacting. It's, it's forbearing. It's a type of being merciful. A merciful person will, will think the best about somebody. That's their first reaction. Or maybe your first reaction is not to, but then you say, okay, but, but I remember what's true about me, and so I'm going to put this on. I'm going to wait a minute, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to their story. Maybe they have another side of the story. I'm going to give them an opportunity to explain themselves or apologize. And then I'm going to forgive them is, is the idea that he's saying here. So we have this forbearance. It's a type of being gracious. You know what being gracious is? It's treating people better than you think they deserve. You ever, you, ever, you ever just like justify in your head the way that you're acting towards someone or, or reacting towards someone? It's because you think they deserve it. And so it's justified, but he's saying no. Forbearance means you treat people better than you think they deserve. Sometimes this means we overlook wrongs. And sometimes that's just being nice. Sometimes we need to be kind and we don't need to over look wrongs but we need to be willing to deal with it with them to have a hard conversation with them forbearance doesn't mean that you just let everything go it means that you're loving in the process of community sometimes that means having hard conversations and not overlooking something or better yet stuffing it and then he says i want you to have unconditional love for each other he says and above all these put on love it's agape love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And we need to remember that our love for others is a response to God's love for us. Why do you love other people? Because God loved you first. That's what it says in 1 John. We love other people because God loved us first. Is anybody, if, that, if that's true, is there anybody who doesn't deserve to be loved then? No, because if it's a response to God's love, is there there a moment in life where God doesn't deserve to be loved? And so he goes, because I loved you even when you were a mess and continue to while you're a mess, I want you to love other people even when they're a mess. So he's almost saying it like this in the beginning. He goes, remember that you are beloved of God. And in response, I want you to be loving to others. And then he says, And do it all for the glory of God. We do it all for the glory of God. And specifically, what does that look like for Paul? He says that the peace of Jesus would rule your heart. That the peace of Jesus would rule your heart. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. What's the worldly wisdom about your heart? Many people say this, like, follow your heart, right? You ever heard that? Just follow your heart. Let me give you some good advice. Just follow your heart. What Paul is saying, he's flipping it. He's, he said, no, get your heart to follow Jesus. Don't follow your heart. Have your heart follow Jesus, is what he's saying. Let, your, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. The Greek word here is the same word we'd use if it was, if, if it was the umpire for tonight's Dodgers versus the other guys. Right? <laughs> The umpire, let the peace of God be the umpire of your life, and what he says goes, right? There might be some like, you know, they didn't have, when, when it's God, there's no like, you know, let's, 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 let's see this, get a review, right? There's no review when it's God. You don't need to review it. He sees everything perfectly. He says, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, umpire your hearts, umpire your life. How will you know if the peace of Christ is ruling your heart? Because some people say like this, oh, I'll have a peace about it here's the problem with that. I don't feel guilty. My conscience is clean in this, so I feel like it must be okay. No, the Bible is very clear that your conscience can be seared. If your conscience is seared, then you don't have the peace of Christ ruling your heart. You have a seared conscience ruling your heart. And so, it's not as simple as just feeling peace. But what does this look like? Three things. First of all, you'll be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction. When the Holy Spirit is is saying, hey, I want you to deal with this. I want, you to, I want you to, even like last week, I want you to starve that addiction. I want you to pull some weeds here. Conviction is different than condemnation. Conviction will, will, will be God's helping you to deal with things that you need to deal with so you can be closer to God. Condemnation is, is the enemy pointing out what's bad about you so you feel bad and you want to hide from God. It's completely different. Are you sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction? Are you a peacemaker? The peace of Christ rules your heart. You'll be a peacemaker. You'll seek peace. And you'll be thankful, he says. He says, let the peace of Christ rule your heart and be thankful. He wants you to be healthy and grow to maturity. Well, here's something that we need to know about mature Christians. Mature Christians don't wait till they feel thankful. They choose to be thankful. You guys see the difference? When you wait to feel thankful, you'll be thankful sometimes you won't, but he wants you to be thankful all the time. He wants you to choose to be thankful. Why? Because that's how you let the peace of Christ rule your heart, by choosing to be thankful. So the peace of Jesus will rule your heart, and we'll have the worship team come back up. And then he says, and God's word will be so in you that it will come out of you. If you, have the, if, if you want to live for the glory of God, he says, then you need to be the type of person that God's word is so in you that it's coming out of you. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart. What does it look like to have God's word so in you that it's coming out of you? This doesn't mean that you're that person who has an annoying Bible verse for every situation. I'll just tell you that right now. You know, like someone comes up and I'm really hurting. You're like, well, uh, God works all things for, together for the good, right? And they're like, think hey, that's true, but it doesn't help me right now, right? Don't be that guy. But what does it look like? Well, it looks like, first of all, that you would be saturating yourself in God's word. You would be, you would be constantly pursuing the knowledge of God through his word and saturating yourself in it. How many of you guys are saturating? I mean, if you binge on on uh, on netflix um, stranger things part two this weekend then you're filled with i'm not saying you shouldn't have done that i'm just saying what if we did that with god's word what if we just started binging on god's word and then you would be saturated and then what would what would your life look like what would your attitude look like what would the things that you talk about look like what would the things that you think about look like they'd be different that's what he's saying and you would, you would, you would want to, when you, when you found treasures in God's word, you would want to tell people about it. Amen? Because it would be coming out of you. If, if, if you were saturated with God's word, you know what? You would, you, would, you would have people that would be coming up to you and asking you for wisdom. Do people come up to you and say, hey, I don't know what to do right now. I, I want to talk to you about it and get some wisdom. Well, someone who's saturated in God's word, that's the type of person you want to go to for wisdom. Anyone ever had this happen, I, w- I would raise my hand, but then you guys would judge me. But you're just like doing your daily do, your whatever you do, you're doing your thing, right? And then something comes out of your mouth, and you're like, where did that come from? Like something that you're not proud of. You know what happened to you, just me? When I was a youth pastor, um, that happened to me one time. I was uh, uh, walking through the snow at winter camp, and I slipped, and I landed on my keister on a piece of, uh, of ice. And a word came out of my mouth. I won't say it here. It's more wholesome than that now. A word came out of my mouth, and you should have seen the look on these junior hires' face. It was not a good moment. They were like, Pastor Kenny just said, do you know? And they talked about it the whole time. Because sometimes in those moments, you don't think about it. It just comes out. This is what Paul's saying. We call that, we have a word for that. It's called geigo, right? Garbage in, garbage out. Well, Paul flips it around. He says, no, what I want you to live, I want you to live gospel in, gospel out. So much that in those moments, what comes out of your mouth is you're singing hymns and psalms and spiritual things, right? Whatever is noble, whatever is good, you think about those things, Paul says, in another letter. This is the idea of what it looks like to be so dwelling in God's word that it is coming out of you. It's geigo, gospel in gospel out and then he says do ordinary things with gospel intentionality he says do whatever you do he's not saying like hey let your christian program be your christian program you go to church on sunday you do christian events and then everything else is separate like that's not my christian stuff i have this right like, device saying no your whole life 24 7 being all about jesus whatever you do you brush your teeth you eat you go to starbucks When you go to work, when you don't go to Starbucks because you're not mainstream and you're cool, I don't know. But whatever you do, he says, do it in word or deed, in the things that you're saying and the things that you're doing. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This reminds me of one of my favorite verses in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. He says this, he goes, do whatever you do. Whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's been said that the glory of God is how God makes himself known to us and through us. Sometimes that's through Shekinah glory, this felt presence, and sometimes it's through all kinds of different things. The Hebrew says God has made himself known in all these different ways and in this final day through Jesus Christ and also, I would say, through the church as we proclaim his name. But whatever we do, whatever we do, If God's glory is how he's making himself known to us and God's glory is how he's making himself known through us, then whatever we do should be, our desire should be to know God. What are you doing to know God? I just want to know God. And what are you doing to make God? I just want to make God known. I want other people to know this God that I know. He's saying, since this amazing things that has happened to you, put off the things you need to put off and put on the things you need to put on, but the real goal is that you would be healthy and grow to maturity and a mature Christian is going to desire to know God and is going to desire to make God known. That is our mission, church. I want to pray and let's let the word of God that we've just heard dwell richly in us. Let's let us absorb a little bit and let's just choose to be thankful. Let's choose to stand to our feet and sing like the saved. Amen?